Gracious Father, we thank you for occasions like this that bring us together where we can uh, not only enjoy uh, each other's company and fellowship, but uh, that we might also open up your word and uh, think and study. We pray that the things that we study tonight would help us, help us to better understand you, your nature, uh, your work. We pray, Father, that you would uh, grant us uh, the ability to uh, accept certain things that, that perhaps we can't fully understand, uh, but to always uh, trust in you and, uh, and always uh, devote ourselves to your will uh, to the best of our ability. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we left off uh, last time about ready to enter into uh, a study of uh, God's uh, sovereignty and His providential work in the world as opposed to, or really in connection with, uh, the free will of man. And uh, are those concepts uh, compatible? And if so, is there a way that we, can, that we can fully understand those principles? That's kind of where we left off. We've defined those terms. Uh, God's sovereignty, of course, has to do with God's authority, His complete authority over His creation. His providence is how He exercises that authority in working certain things out according to His will. And uh, we're going to look at passages tonight that... that First of all, we're going to look at passages that affirm the free will of man. That God has given us the ability to make choices. And that He will hold us accountable for those choices. Then we're going to look at passages that affirm that God is working out a plan in the world that is going to reach a certain end. And that God knows how it's going to end. Uh, and... Um, and that a part of God's working out that plan involves His utilizing of people to accomplish His end. And so the question that often comes up is, well, if God is sovereign and He's working things out according to His will, then how can we at the same time be free, be free moral agents, where we have the freedom to make the choices that we make and that God is going to hold us accountable for those choices. So that's kind of the question before us. And it fits into Esther because I believe that the, that the book of Esther shows how God worked out a certain uh, end, a certain result that involved Esther and that involved the Jewish people and their, uh, their perseverance, and that God worked behind the scenes providentially to bring about that result that it was His will that it worked out the way it worked out. But that working out in the book of Esther also involves the choices of a lot of people. Okay, So that's how this will fit into Esther. And so I want to kind of cover these topics before we actually start looking at the text. And that's why we're going through, uh, through this. So that's, that's the sticky situation. That's the difficulty that is before us tonight is to is to look at both of those concepts and consider how they might work together. 
Alright? So, let's talk about free will. First of all, we're look at some passages that affirm the ability of people to make choices. Alright? So we're going to work ourselves through these. Matthew 23 is where we'll start. Matthew 23. We probably won't say a whole lot by way of uh, explanation of these passages because they're, you know, they're pretty, they're, they're pretty plain in the point that we're that we're making. Matthew 23. Jesus. This is the, the the chapter where Jesus denounces the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and it's just one after another. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and all that. Now, as he gets to the end of that, verse 37, Matthew 23, 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You would not, some translations say. Now, the, the very language that Jesus uses there implies that this was their choice. That He would have, and He says that, I would have gathered you together. Just like a hen gathers her chicks you know, for, for protection and all of that. I would have done that. But you weren't willing. Right? So they evidently had the ability to make a choice, and they made their choice. And their choice was to reject Him when he would have embraced them. All right? How about John chapter 5? John chapter 5. <clears throat> if you've been in our uh, Sunday morning class, uh, we've been studying John's account. We did this one several weeks ago, John chapter 5. Jesus in that chapter goes through a, a, a pretty lengthy list of... Um, Evidences that, that prove that he was to be. Witnesses to his... Then you get down to verse 39, after he's gone through all of that. He says, <clears throat> he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And then look at verse 40. Yet you... Refuse to come to me that you might have life. You will not come to me that you might have life. So again, Jesus places the burden of responsibility on his auditors. When he says, you've searched the scriptures. You think that you found eternal life in those scriptures, but those scriptures testify of me. But you reject me. You will not come to me that you might have life. So the choice was evidently theirs. How about um, Acts chapter 13? Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Antioch. And they have preached the gospel there and uh, you get down late in the chapter, verse uh, 45, Acts 13, 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. All right, so again, look at whose responsibility Paul says that is. He said, you have thrust the gospel from yourselves, and you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And so because of your choice, we're turning our attention to the Gentiles. All right? Uh, Joshua 24, verse 15. A couple of Old Testament passages. Joshua chapter 24. Historically, this is after um, Joshua has led uh, the Jewish people in conquest of the land of Canaan. Uh, they have uh, they have conquered the land and they've sent uh, all of the different tribes to their uh, designated uh, areas. Things are settling down. And now Joshua speaks and he says, Joshua 24, verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So if people did not have the freedom to make choices, Joshua didn't know it. Because he tells them straightforwardly, you choose today who it is you're going to serve. You want to serve the gods? Uh, that your father served on the other side of the river, do that. You want to serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living, do that. But he said, we're making the choice, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. All right? So the choice was theirs. One more on uh, free will. Book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is, historically speaking, uh, before what Joshua uh, just, what we just read from Joshua. Moses is speaking, and he's encouraging his, uh, his people to obey God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. Moses had just finished giving what many have referred to as the law of blessing and cursing. And it basically was this. Moses was telling them in no uncertain terms, when you enter this land and you take it over with God as your helper and you get settled in there, if, if you obey God and you remain faithful to Him, He will bless you. You'll be able to stay in the land and, and all of that. But if you disobey, if you go after idols and, and, and continually live in a state of rebellion against God, then you will face curses, not the least of which is being uprooted from the land and taken captive by other nations. So it's the law of blessing and cursing. And so he summarizes it there in verse 19. And he says, so here's what I've laid before you. I've laid before you life, death, blessing, and cursing. 
choose life. Moses is telling them, you have a choice to make. All right? Now, that's just a smattering of passages that you could duplicate all over the Bible that give us that message, that we have the ability to make choices and we will be accountable for the choices we make. All right? Now, let's look at these other passages that talk about God's sovereign superintendence of His world. In other words, that God causes certain things to happen. All right, here we go. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> now, these early, uh, this early section of Ephesians 1 is... Um, Paul is talking about God's, uh, God's eternal purpose. That God had a plan before even the creation of the world that would bring about, ultimately, the redemption of man through Jesus Christ. God had planned all of that before the creation. And God worked out that plan. Okay, And so it's in that context that we find these words in verse 11. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So regarding God, Paul said God has a purpose. God has a will. And God works all things out in harmony with His purpose and with His will. Okay, That sounds like sovereignty. It sounds like God superintending the affairs of life so that his will is ultimately accomplished. All right? Let's look at some more. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 is the chapter that uh, describes one of the dreams that Daniel interpreted. Given Daniel a very special uh, ability uh, to interpret dreams, God would communicate to certain individuals by means of dreams. And often, the, the individual who had the dream would not understand the message that God was trying to communicate. Daniel had the ability to reveal, here's the message God wanted you to get through that dream. All right? Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, had a dream that involved uh, the, the image of a man, and, and the image was made of different kinds of metals. Uh, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet, a mixture of iron and clay. All right? And then other things happen. You know, the, a, a stone strikes the image, it falls, the stone grows into a big mountain that fills the whole earth. Okay? Weird dream. Daniel comes along and interprets that. Okay, And this is the context in which we find the verse for our purposes tonight. Daniel 2, 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings 
and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things and so forth. Right? So he's basically extolling the power of God and then he gets into the interpretation of the dream later. All right? For our purposes, I want for us to notice what he says about God. In verse 21 specifically, he changes times and seasons. He, God, removes kings and sets up kings. Now, when you go back through history and, and you look at how kingdoms rise and fall, doesn't that process involve the choices of people? Yeah, it does. But here says God's responsible for that. God raises kings and God removes kings. He'll make the same point a couple of chapters later. Look over to chapter 4. Daniel is addressing... Well, in the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, the same king, um, is, is stricken by God for... Um, for, for being haughty, proud, for pride. And, and, and Daniel t- told him that it was going to happen. And it happened just like Daniel had predicted. So when it was all over, Nebuchadnezzar had been restored. Nebuchadnezzar, this point. Chapter 4, Daniel, beginning in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High... And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not, understand, Nebuchadnezzar was not an inspired prophet, like Daniel was. But what Nebuchadnezzar said is true because it's supported by the rest of what Scripture says. And, his, and he's saying there, God does as He wills. God does whatever He wants to do because He is sovereign. And He does that in heaven and He does it among the inhabitants of the earth. You got, there are passages, uh, just right quickly, um, we don't have to turn to these, but... Uh, Passages that make the same point, written by inspired individuals. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115.3 Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Psalm 135, verse 6. Alright? Let's look at another place. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, verse 24. I'm on time. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Skip down to verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? 
His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? So God makes the point, whatever I purpose, whatever I plan, I accomplish. And when I stretch out my hand to cause something to happen, who's, who has the power, the ability to stay my hand and keep me from doing what I purpose to do? Alright, one more from Isaiah. Turn over to chapter 46. Isaiah 46. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 9. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Alright? So again, God's making the same point. He says, I have a plan and I accomplish that. I can declare the end from the beginning by saying, my counsel is going to stand. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Alright? Now, we've looked at a bunch of passages that say man has the complete freedom to make choices and he'll be, he'll be held accountable for the choices he makes. We've got a lot of other passages that say God is working out a plan that is in perfect harmony with His will that involves things like removing kings and setting up kings. But we recognize in the process of time that those things involve the choices of other people. Now I want to show you a couple of passages that seem to put both of those things in the same verse. Alright? Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. We are in uh, chapter 16. <clears throat> Verse 7. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And we understand the nature of a proverb, right? That a proverb, by its nature, is a, a, a general statement of wisdom. Okay? We need to be careful with proverbs that we don't press them farther than they were intended to be understood. Will there ever be an occasion when a man can live his life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and yet his enemies are not at peace with him? Who's the classic example of that? Jesus? <laughs> if there was ever a man who lived his life in a way that always pleased the Lord was him, but were his enemies at peace with him? Not unless you call crucifixion peaceful behavior. Okay? A proverb is a statement of general truth. Generally speaking, if you live your life in a way that pleases God, are you going to be able to live a life that's, that's peaceful? Yeah, sure. Generally speaking, yeah. That's what the proverb is stating. All right? So, with that understood, notice the wording of it, though. When a man's ways please the Lord, when I choose to live my life in accordance with God's will, 
When a man's ways please the Lord, he, the Lord, makes his enemies be at peace with him. So on the one hand, you've got the man making a choice to live in ways that are pleasing to God, and in response to that, God works to make his enemies live in a way that's peaceful with him. All right? So, individual choice and the sovereignty of God in one verse. Look at verse 9, same chapter. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I make plans. I choose which direction I want to go. But it's the Lord who establishes the steps that I ultimately take. Free will, God's sovereignty. All right? That's the dilemma. Now, what's the answer to the dilemma? Oh, we're out of time. Sorry. No, we're not quite yet. I wish we were. <laughs> um, here is my answer to that, <clears throat> for whatever that's worth. And my answer to this dilemma is very similar to my answer regarding the nature of God. Does the Bible present the case that God is one? Yeah. The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, that the Jewish people recited every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Is one Lord. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is that true? Sure it is. Does the Bible also present the case that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all divine, are all a part of that divine essence, that divine being that we call God? Yeah. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> How can that be? Well, because it has to do with the nature of God, I don't know that it's possible for finite human beings to fully comprehend that. And so we're left with something that may be a dilemma in our minds as far as trying to explain it. But one thing we know for certain is that the Bible teaches it. And unless I'm willing to affirm that I know exactly how deity can operate, how deity can work, and if I am willing to, you know, if I'm not willing to claim that I know all of that, then I need to be careful before I say that two things can't be, that seem to be difficult to harmonize. In other words, if, if I don't completely and fully know the capacity of the divine essence, his, his being, his, his, his mode of operation, then I need to leave open the possibility that there are going to be some things that I don't fully and completely understand or can explain about Him. But I embrace them because the Bible teaches them. And the Bible is, is a trustworthy document. Okay, So my answer to the, the difficulty involved in human free will and the sovereignty of God is very similar to my answer regarding the question of how do you explain the Trinity. I don't. I can't. Okay? But I know that the Bible teaches it. And so I accept it and I embrace it because it's taught 
there. It's a mystery that we can't fully explain because we don't possess the knowledge that deity possesses. All right? That's my quick answer. I will offer you a possibility uh, that, again, I offer it just for your consideration. And it may be that this whole issue turns on the perspective from which we look at it. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. From God's eternal perspective, the actions of men are foreknown. Okay? God has foreknowledge. He declares the end from the beginning, right? Isaiah, that passage we looked at earlier. So from God's perspective... Actions are foreknown and therefore can be spoken of as determined because God knows how those actions are going to turn out. Okay? He, he knows the free will decisions of men before we make them. Okay? That's why he could say things like, speaking through Peter in Acts 2, verse 23, about the death of Christ, <clears throat> where Peter said to his audience regarding Jesus, You have taken... Well, uh, actually starts out before that. Jesus uh, of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken, and by the hands of lawless men have crucified and slain. All right, so he described the death of Jesus as being according to the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And yet, in the very same breath, he said, you're responsible for killing me. Okay, well, how could that have been according to God's determined plan? Well, because, has, because God is eternal. And because God is eternal, he doesn't operate chronologically. <laughs> All right, stick with me on this. Picture in your mind a timeline. Beginning of time, end of time, time. Okay? We're somewhere in here, right? We're somewhere in the time part. Prior to this, we refer to that as eternity. Eternity past is kind of how, before the foundation of the world. End of time, eternity. Okay? Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, God inhabits eternity. When we look at events, we look at them simply because of the fact that we are finite. We look at them chronologically. We can't escape time. We're a part of it. God is not a part of time. God is eternal. So while we're here, God is Okay? God just is. So when God looks at time, God just sees it. God just exists. God just is. So God can look wherever and see what's going to happen. And because He sees it, He, from His perspective, sees it as determined. And that's why you have passages in Scripture that speak of actions as being determined. From God's point of view, it's determined. From our perspective, 
from within the confines of time, our choices are free. Okay? That's why we can be held accountable for them. I want to read to you something that I think explains it well. I don't often just read stuff, but I thought this explained it well. As, As an illustration. Suppose you cannot watch your favorite sports event live on TV. So you record it. When you watch it later, the entire game and every play in it are absolutely determined and cannot be changed. No matter how many times you rerun it, the final score as well as every aspect of every play will always be the same. Yet, when the game happened, every event was freely chosen. No one was forced to play in a certain way. Therefore, the same event was both determined and free at the same time. Even so, our acts can be free and determined at the same time. Someone may object that this is so only because the event had already occurred. Whereas before the game was played, it was not predetermined. In response, we need only point out that if God is all-knowing, omniscient, from the standpoint of His foreknowledge, the game was predetermined. He knew eternally exactly how it was going to turn out in time, though we did not. Therefore, if God has infallible foreknowledge of the future, including our free acts, then everything that will happen in the future is predetermined, even our free acts, again, only from the perspective of God. This doesn't mean that our actions are not free. It simply means that God knows for certain how we are going to use our freedom. That's the best I know how to do with that. Okay? It's, it's, it's a difficult situation, and I don't know that we can fully explain it. But I think there's enough that is revealed that helps us to be able to embrace it and accept it, because the Bible teaches it, even if I can't explain every nuance of it. Yes? Well, I, 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 thought, it was, I thought it was well stated. All right? So, I would sum it up with this statement. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will is mysterious, but not contradictory. And I'll restate what I said earlier. Unless we're willing to claim absolute knowledge about the capacity of deity to work, then we should exercise caution in claiming that we know that God cannot do a particular thing. Okay? Yeah, Carrie. It, I would say it involves providence. Okay? God's, God's sovereignty in bringing about a certain result. I, I guess I would say it's a, it's a yeah I, I guess it is it's it's the it's it's God providence is God's working in His world to bring about a certain result while utilizing the free will choices of man. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess yeah I guess what you're saying is is the way to put it. Yeah. The the conflict between 
God's sovereignty and man's free will is, is, is where providence works. All right? Hopefully that is clearer than mud. I, I, um, hopefully it's helpful. All right? Now, is that the stop light or a couple of minutes? Okay. <clears throat> How long have I been here? And I still don't understand the lighting system. Okay. Now, what we're going to do um, beginning next Wednesday night, God willing, is now give our introduction to the book of Esther itself and then go on in probably to chapter 1. Okay? Um, and what we'll do with regard to the introduction of Esther is do a couple of things, three things, four things. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll talk about the setting the historical setting of the book uh, will identify the major, uh, the major players, major characters. Uh, will uh, identify and summarize the plot. What, in other words, what what's happening in the book? What is the what is the central uh, crux of the story? And then the last thing, the fourth thing is, it's a couple of difficulties in the book. Some things that make the book um, uh, not so easy. And then following that, we'll be able to hopefully get into chapter one. All right? You've been very gracious. You listened well. And I appreciate it very much. Thank you.